Chapter 9, The Gift, in which we conclude Abraham's story, discovering the connections with Jesus, and arrive at a final understanding of what it means to love God. Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means we expect God to be good. We believe God will provide, especially in moments when life falls apart. Dee Dee and Papa. My sophomore year of college, my English professor, Tom Chiarella, gave our class an assignment. Choose something, an object that's valuable to you, and write a piece to show us why it's important to you. I don't remember what I wrote about. Probably something stupid, like my copy of Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill CD that was helping me get through a painful breakup. For those of you who are reading this who are Gen Zers, a CD was a thin piece of plastic inscribed with digital codes of music that could be read by a CD player. But one of my classmates wrote a story. Her name, we'll call her Nadia. And it made such an impact on me that it still resonates with me to this day. Nadia chose to write about a letter mounted in a simple wooden frame that's hanging on the wall of her grandmother's house. It was scrawled out on yellowed paper, and it was a note from her grandfather, Paul, who everyone called Papa, to Natalie's grandmother, Dolores, who everyone affectionately called Dee Dee. For those of you who might wonder, Nadia was from Indiana, and names like Dee Dee and Papa happen in places like Indiana. Anyway, Dee Dee and Papa had been high school sweethearts, but after Pearl Harbor, Papa signed up, like so many others from the greatest generation, to go fight on the front lines of World War II. He was assigned to the Pacific Theater, a particularly deadly assignment. Before Papa shipped out, he proposed to Dee Dee, but she promptly turned him down. I am not marrying a dead man, she said. You get back home and I promise you, she said, pausing to slowly spin around. You can have all this. Dee Dee was feisty. Perhaps Dee Dee hoped that the thought of coming home to marry her could buoy Papa through the terrible days of war. And the days were terrible. Papa was part of the forces that liberated the Philippines in 1944, and he was stationed there along with tens of thousands of other young soldiers. The U.S. was amassing troops as part of Operation Downfall, which planned to send roughly two million troops to invade mainland Japan. Both sides knew this would be an absolute disaster. Japan would never surrender her homeland. Military experts told Eisenhower a land invasion would be 10 times more deadly than Normandy. Both sides estimated the casualties in the millions. Papa knew if there was a land invasion of Japan, he likely would not be coming home. You all know the history. 1945, Hiroshima on August 6th, Nagasaki on August 9th, Japan surrenders on September 2nd. And on that day, rejoicing rang out from the U.S. troops stationed in the Philippines. And from the account that Nadia tells, Papa went out to the markets of the Philippines that evening to buy an engagement ring for Didi, but he couldn't find one. Apparently, diamonds were in short supply during wartime, I guess. But he did find something, a stunning pearl necklace made with pearls from the Philippines. Papa took his money. And he bought the most beautiful necklace he'd ever seen. And he shipped that necklace to Dee Dee along with a simple note that read, Dearest Dee, 
As you've heard by now, the war is over, and soon all of us will be coming home. Please consider this necklace a symbol of my intention to make you my wife. Yours forever, P. That fading letter hung in a simple wood frame in Nadia's grandmother's house. Papa died of lung cancer when Nadia was little. Didi moved into a house just down the street just to be closer to her daughter, Nadia's mother. And now that famed, framed photograph and the bright white pearl necklace Didi would wear on special occasions were sentimental reminders of the most precious thing that Didi had. That letter and that necklace were the genesis of Nadia's entire family. All her aunts and uncles, her mom, her sister, and all her cousins. All because of that letter and that necklace. Didi was surrounded by love. She had a habit of bouncing each grandchild on her knee, grabbing their face gently in her hands and saying, Now I need to tell you a secret. I love you the very most. When met with protests from the other grandkids, Didi would feign surprise. Well, I love you the very most too. One summer afternoon when she was about six, Nadia was playing over at her grandmother's house. Didi took Nadia's little sister back across the street to get some Kool-Aid, and Nadia wandered into Didi's bedroom. She wanted to play dress-up, so she went into the closet to put on one of Didi's pretty dresses. Then, Nadia saw Didi's vanity. She looked at the makeup brushes and the lipstick. Nadia put on the red lipstick and brushed her cheeks with the pretty pink powder. And then she saw Didi's jewelry, and her eyes were drawn to it like any little girl's eyes might be. Nadia took the shiny, lustrous white pearl necklace and put it around her neck. Oh, she looked so fabulous, so grown up. Nadia knew she had to go show mom and Didi, and so she set off across the street. Nadia ran down the sidewalk a bit, but the dress was a bit too long. A road crew was repaving the sleepy neighborhood streets with hot asphalt. Nadia passed by them and bolted across the street, brimming with excitement. And as she ran, one hand holding up the excess of her dress, her right thumb caught the inside of the pearl necklace. And as her arm swung down as she ran, it pulled and it broke the necklace. Nadia watched in horror as the pearls hit the hot summer pavement, bouncing left and right, some down the storm drain, some bouncing into the newly poured asphalt that was literally being pressed down by a giant steel drum. One second. One mistake. Nadia was not too young to know exactly what she had done. She knew there was no undoing this. She knew it was ruined. Didi's precious necklace was ruined. So Nadia did what any little kid would do. She ran away, and she hid. For 12 hours, she hid in her neighbor's bushes, crying until she couldn't cry anymore. She was not very old, but she knew there's no way this could ever get put back together. The image of sweet Nadia leaning onto the yellow siding of her neighbor's house behind their tall, branchy bushes, knees and cheeks streaked with dirt and tears, hugging her knees in her grandmother's oversized, floral print dress is powerful to me. What do you do when life falls apart and there's no way for you to put it back together? Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe it's not your fault at all. In the end, I'm not even sure that matters. The pain's the same, it seems. It's all ruined, and there you are in the middle of it.
What do you do? That's the story of Nadia. But it's also Abraham's story. And ours. We don't know how much trouble we are in. The theologian Dallas Willard once wrote, The reason we do not run to God is because we do not know how much trouble we're in. Sometimes Genesis 3 is called the fall of man, which is terminology that goes back centuries. But Bible scholar John Walton proposes a different nomenclature, saying instead of calling it the fall, we should call it the loss because they lost access to God's presence. What God had planned from eternity past to dwell with his people was lost. I like this. Instead of the fall, the loss. It's a reminder that things aren't the way they should be. Sin not only corrupts us, but it pushes us away from the source of life, God himself. Sin stains us, but now the powers want to enslave us, and death is stalking us, and we cannot escape. We cannot invent a way out. This foe is too powerful. Whether or not Abraham raises the knife to his son, Isaac has a death problem. Death will come for him. It comes for you and for me and everyone we love. We will, at some point, all be ripped away from those we love, and we will lose everything. In fact, death is a reality that comes not just at the end of our life, but also visits us in the middle of our life. Anything that depletes, diminishes, or corrupts life is a little bit like a little death. Without God, we will all be lost. We don't know how much trouble we are in. We can't be loyal to God because left to ourselves, we'll seize control and run our lives the way we want. We can't trust God. Left to ourselves, we'll grab whatever we desire. We can't seek justice. Left to ourselves, we'll devolve into selfishness and greed. And we can't believe that God is good because when life falls apart, so will we, falling into despair and hopelessness. Ugh. How do we get out of this mess? It'd take a miracle. C.S. Lewis in The End of Human Language There's a staggering moment toward the end of C.S. Lewis's seminal work, Mere Christianity. For the previous 155 pages, Lewis has used his prodigious imagination and considerable learning to describe with fresh words and brilliance the wonder and beauty of Christianity. His dazzling presentation succeeds in making a powerful, rational, logical case for the central tenets of Christianity, which is why this particular book is one of the most important and impactful books in the long history of Christianity. And yet, there is a moment in the book where Lewis just gives up. His language fails him. It's a moment near the end of the book when he's trying to describe the mechanics of how exactly sinful mankind can somehow become clean, can become sons and daughters of God, have their nature changed. He's trying to describe, in the words of the prophet Ezekiel, how we can have, quote, new hearts. He's trying to describe how a human being whose inner nature is bent toward allegiance only to himself or herself can suddenly swing toward being devoted to God. He's trying to describe, in a word, how salvation happens, how it works. Lewis starts in with a long metaphor about toys coming to life, but then he scraps it, saying the following words, quote, but of course, none of these illustrations really works perfectly. In the long run, God is no one but himself, and what he does is like nothing else. You could hardly expect it to be otherwise. Now, at this point, Lewis could have easily entered into deep theological discussions, using words and phrases to describe this new life with God, but he does not. Because as one trained in literature and a professor of medieval literature in particular, Lewis realizes instinctively that the Bible does not give us philosophical theories. It doesn't describe things in that way. 
this work of God, whether it's called salvation or atonement or being born again or becoming new creations or any other wonderful phrasing used by Christians throughout the ages, is not shared by the authors of scriptures as theories. These ideas are advanced through word pictures, through stories, through motifs, through images. Skilled professional Christians often express deep frustration with the sacred task of trying to explain the cross of Jesus Christ, of what it accomplished, what it means. The feeling is perhaps best summed up by the famed Protestant theologian William Plocker, who once wrote, I do not know how to make this story work. Imagination and participation, apparently, are the key to understanding the cross in all the biblical stories. We do not interpret them, writes Scott McKnight, as we do inhabit them. I've been thinking about this a lot, and it seems to me that the story of Genesis 22 and the lessons in the story of Isaac and Abraham are best understood when taken together with two other stories the Bible gives us. This particular story in Genesis ties into two others that happen in the next two preceding books of the Torah, Exodus and Leviticus. It's almost like you can't fully understand, I know this is dumb, but just stay with me, Luke Skywalker's meaning to the story just by watching Star Wars A New Hope. You need to know he's a Jedi who's also Vader's son. That's in The Empire Strikes Back. And you also need to know that Luke risks his own life to redeem his father, and the two of them defeat the Emperor and save the galaxy. That's in Return of the Jedi. The Bible as a whole has much to teach us about God and his character and his attributes and his goals for humanity. We have to be careful not to read Bible verses or Bible stories in isolation from one another. So for right now, I just want to pause and briefly examine three moments offered to us through the first three books of the Bible. It's like Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars and Return of the Jedi all working as one narrative. So here are the three stories, the three moments. Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Exodus, the Passover lamb and in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement. Okay, so for image one in Genesis, the story of Abraham and Isaac. The backstory is that God asked Abraham to do the unthinkable and sacrifice Isaac on the altar. This is a seeming violation of God's own promises. And at the last minute, God stops Abraham from making the sacrifice, giving him a ram, which has been caught in a thicket to sacrifice instead. The big idea in this story is that Abraham and Isaac are spared tragedy because God steps in and provides a substitution. Unlike every other deity in the ancient Near East, God shows us he is a God who gives, not takes. And what it shows about God is that the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide a substitutionary sacrifice. That's image one. Image two is found in the Exodus. It's the image of the Passover lamb. Here's the backstory. The Hebrew people have been enslaved for 400 years by an evil, oppressive tyrant named Pharaoh, suffering economic, physical, and spiritual slavery. God hears their outcry and rescues them from an enemy far more powerful than they could ever defeat. The big idea is that through the blood of the innocent, spotless Passover lamb, God rescues the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh. And what it shows about God is that although humans are utterly powerless, God will rescue humanity from slavery, from bondage, and from oppression by the powers into freedom, and from death into life. And then there's image three that's found in Leviticus, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. Here's the backstory. The Hebrew people have been taken out of Egypt, but they cannot escape the power of sin. 
God gives Moses and Aaron detailed instructions on how to help the people repent of their sins before God so that they can know for sure that they are forgiven and they can live with God as humans were designed to in the garden. The big idea in this story is that the bloody sacrificial death of two separate goats on the high holy day of Yom Kippur accomplishes purification from sin and forgiveness from sin. People can be purified from sin and forgiven. And what it shows about God is that God provides a way to accomplish two things. He cleanses Israel from the effects of sin, removing their guilt and their shame. And number two, God provides a means for the forgiveness of sin so that they can re-enter God's presence and live with him again. Now, by looking at these three stories from the first three books of the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac, the Passover and the Day of Atonement, we are given three stories and three images whose goals are to transfix our imaginations, to capture our hearts and illuminate truths about the complex and powerful work God is seeking to do in humanity and in the world. God is putting things back together, and each of these three stories tells a part about how that works. Didi finds Nadia. Nadia's frantic parents called every neighbor to locate her. Finally, they called the local police to try to find their daughter. And as night fell, the police dog grabbed Nadia's scent from one of her stuffed animals and then quickly and precisely made its way into the bushes of the neighbor. The police officer ducked his flashlight under the bush and found Nadia huddled and shivering in the dirt behind the bushes. He went to tell the family. Nadia's parents hugged each other in relief. She won't come out, though, the officer told him. I tried to get her to come out, but she wouldn't budge. Hmm. Sounds like a job for Dee Dee, Dee Dee said. I told you she was feisty. Dee Dee bent down in front of those bushes and called out to her granddaughter. Honey, why don't you come out of there, she said. Why, it's getting cold. Just seeing Dee Dee caused Nadia to cry tears, again, that she didn't even know she had. She told her grandma through her broken sobs about the necklace, about how it was ruined about how she had broken it. Dee Dee got down on her hands and knees and made her way through the dirt and branches to the little clearing in the bushes where her granddaughter sat. Sweetie, I need you to look at me, Dee Dee said, taking Nadia's hand. That necklace means more to me than any single thing I own in this entire world. I know, Nadia cried. I know, Dee Dee, I know. And so, sweetheart, do you honestly think I would be so foolish? as to leave it right out on my vanity in my bedroom where a curious and beautiful six-year-old girl might want to try it on. Sweetie, after your papa died, I had a costume jeweler make a replica of papa's necklace. I put the real one in a safety deposit box down at the bank. That necklace you had on was nothing more than white plastic and glass. It cost me $27. So now, sweetie, it's getting cold, and I miss my granddaughter so, so much. So can we please go home? Relief flowed over Nadia. She took her grandmother's hand, and together they crawled out from behind the bushes and went home, where Dee Dee used a pink washcloth to wash her up. Relief. Relief. The High Cost of Love These three stories and images from the first three books of the Bible show us three things. One, God wants us to be cleansed from sin. Two, God wants us to know we're forgiven. And three, God wants us to be rescued 
from not only death, but from the power of sin. But what is central to understand is that each of these images point forward in the biblical story to Jesus. Each of these images is showing us something on the surface about God, the depth of which will be fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. By looking at these early chapters in the Bible, we can enter into the story of salvation, of what God is doing to rescue the world. The Passover lamb, the goat driven into the wilderness, the sacrifice in the temple, the cleansing blood, the ransom, the substitute, each and all of these and more have their place. We are meant to stare at them as a mosaic. The apostles and the very early biblical writers used these stories and symbols to help understand and communicate the very meaning of the life and the death of Jesus. We don't have time to fully dive into each of these three stories fully, so let's just examine the first story of the Akedah to see how it ties explicitly and overtly to Jesus. Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of this story and this mountain to the overall biblical narrative. Mount Moriah, where the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac happened, is the location where the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, would later be built. It's the place where God tells Solomon to build the holy temple. In New Testament terms, Mount Moriah is where Jesus Christ would later be crucified. This mountain is another biblical design pattern. This mountain is itself a hyperlink found throughout Scripture. For those of you who know the whole story, it's clear. Genesis 22 is pointing all the way ahead in the story to Jesus himself. Earlier, I said that the Akedah is not mentioned again in the entire Old Testament, but we do find it clearly mentioned again in the New Testament. Christian theologians have remarked for centuries about the purposeful design pattern of the story in Genesis 22 and how it links to the story of Jesus. For example, in both stories, the pregnancy is predicted by a heavenly messenger. An angel tells Sarah and Abraham that they're going to have a son, and an angel tells Mary that she will conceive and give birth to a son. Both stories have a birth that required a miracle. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Mary was a virgin. Both stories retell that a son that is loved by the father. In Genesis, it says, take your son, your only son whom you love, And in Matthew 3.17, God says, This is my son whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. In both stories, wood is carried up a hill toward death. In Genesis, Abraham takes the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And in the story of Jesus, Jesus carries his own cross and went to the place of the skull outside the city limits of Jerusalem. Both cities have a prophecy of return from certain death. In Genesis 22, Abraham says, Stay here. With the donkey, while I and the boy go over there, we will worship and then come back. And then, of course, in the story of Jesus, he says, um, after three days, he will rise. Both stories have the son being bound by their hands and their feet and their legs. In Genesis 22, Abraham binds his son Isaac and lays him on the altar. And Jesus is bound by nails by his feet and by his hands onto a cross. In both stories, a son is led by the father And the son is obedient to the father, even unto death. That's what happens with Isaac, and that's what happens to Jesus. Jesus in the garden says, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In both stories, a substitute lamb is provided by God. In Genesis 22, Abraham says to his son, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. 
And in John 1, 29, John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a, a purposeful hyperlink back. And then in both stories, there's a journey of three days. Abraham and Isaac go on the third day. And of course, in the story of Jesus, on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. In fact, through much of church history, the church calendar specifically tied this story of Abraham and Isaac to Good Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified. On Good Friday, the following passages from Genesis are read to frame the meaning of the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Lord himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love. So there's clear ties between these two stories. But the shocking implication this story points to is beyond the fact that God provides, but reaches further into how God provides. God himself is the sacrifice. I find it curious that even though Genesis 22 is a seminal story in the Bible, the Akedah is not mentioned any other time in the entirety of the Old Testament. Moses doesn't refer to it, nor does David in any story or in any of the songs that David wrote. The wisdom literature doesn't mention it, None of the prophets speak of it or bring it to bear. Is it because it was too terrible? Or maybe it's because it was so singular. From a narrative perspective, this account in Genesis is utterly unique. Human sacrifice is outlawed by Moses' law. It's called detestable by God. God clearly prohibits human sacrifice, which was the custom in the ancient Near East. And God even goes so far to say that if anyone in Israel participates in human sacrifice, God will, quote, set his face against him. And then God commands the community leaders to kill the person who did the human sacrifice. God is very extreme about this, very serious. At no other point in the Bible does God ever ask a human being to undergo what Abraham went through. In a real way, this was a one-time event, never to be repeated in the biblical narrative, nor asked of any other servant of God. The horror of this event is just too great. In this story, as he and his father march up the mountain, Isaac asks, where's the lamb? And his father, Abraham, replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Centuries later, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, the lamb of God. The New Testament writers clearly link the two. The death of Jesus is compared to the sacrifice of Isaac. Paul makes the link to Jesus in this verse in Romans 8, 831. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The apostle Peter also makes the tie to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God, provided by God himself. In 1 Peter 1, verse 18, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. And perhaps most famously, in the verse John 3.16, Jesus himself explains the provision of God. In John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The ultimate answer to Isaac's question, where's the lamb, did eventually come, came in the person 
of Jesus Christ. So when it comes down to it, God was the one who made the sacrifice. DD's safety deposit box. A good while later, when Nadia was a young woman in her first year of college, she got the call to come home. DD was not doing well. A few days later, surrounded by her family, DD passed away. The family prepared to see DD's house. Nadia and her sister helped provide emotional support for their mother as she went through Didi's things. Nadia walked through her home, staring at the letter from Papa. Somehow that letter was the charter for her whole family, the love that started it all. And somehow that love had echoed forward even now. They remembered Didi, her love, her spirit. They laughed. In her personal effects, they found the safety deposit key for the box that held the pearl necklace from Papa. Nadia went down to the bank with her parents. They were escorted into the back room. A bank representative pulled out the box and gently laid it on the table. They opened it up. There were deeds. There were some official records, some bonds. But there was no necklace. Just a small piece of paper with Dee Dee's distinctive handwriting on it. She'd included a note that said simply, Tell Nadia I love her the very most. You see, there had never been a replica necklace. That pearl necklace Nadia had ruined was indeed the original from the Philippines. It was the necklace Papa had given her all those years ago. It was the real one. But you see, there was something so much more valuable to Dee Dee than even her most precious heirloom. The heart of her little granddaughter. Dee Dee knew Nadia was too young. She couldn't understand or take the weight of that guilt. So Dee Dee simply absorbed it for her. She swallowed it whole in a way that only love can. This is what it means to love. You absorb the cost because your kids can't. You grab the bee and let it sting your hand so it won't sting them. You catch them so they won't be hurt by the fall. You lose sleep so they can be comforted after that nightmare and they can rest in peace. You sacrifice so they can thrive. This is parenting. This is grandparenting. This is family. This is friendship. This is love. And this is what God does at the Akeda. Theologians call this the biblical model of substitution. It's a fancy word, but every parent knows what it means. Shoot, anyone who ever has loved knows what it means. It means saying with your heart and with your life, you matter more to me than me. God, in his goodness, partners with his son, Jesus Christ, who volunteers to step in front of death so that death might kill him instead of us. In a mysterious way that I can't quite describe with words, the triune God himself pays a debt we could never pay. He lifts a burden we could never lift. But the story continues. Jesus ends up defeating death, conquering it. He doesn't stay dead. And he brings that life to us. The story of Abraham and Isaac is a story about God providing. And it hints, 
it points, it foreshadows a reality that's almost too great to comprehend, that on a cross, in the moment of the crucifixion, God is the sacrifice himself. God doesn't demand we sacrifice. God doesn't give instructions for sacrifice. God is the sacrifice. The idea of substitution says that in the moments of salvation, God is always the active agent, and that somehow the reconciliation of humanity to God happens when God puts himself in man's place and puts man in God's place as a sheer act of grace and love. As the theologian Karl Barth wrote, the very heart of the atonement is the overcoming of sin, sin in its character as the rebellion of man against God and in its character as the ground of man's hopeless destiny and death. It was to fulfill this judgment on sin that the Son of God as man took our place as sinners. He fulfills it, the judgment, as a man in our place by treading the way of sinners to its bitter end in death, in destruction, in the limitless anguish of separation from God. We can say indeed that he fulfills this judgment by suffering the punishment which we have all brought on ourselves. God provides for sin. God provides for reconciliation. God provides a way to beat death. God provides a way to be released from guilt. God provides a way to be cleansed from sin. God provides a way for his people to dwell with him. God provides, but it cost him. Because it's not rams or goats or lambs, something much more costly is needed, something much more powerful. God himself will be the sacrifice. God will substitute himself. God is the acting agent. God provides the ram in Genesis 22, and in the New Testament, we see that God provides the lamb too. But the crucial difference between the Akeda and the cross, finally, is that the Father is not sacrificing the Son. God the Father and God the Son go together with a single will to sacrifice for us and for our salvation. Abraham's story in Genesis is pointing us to the fact that God provides. And what does the provision of Jesus mean for humanity? That's where the two other images come into play here. Jesus brings rescue, that's the Exodus story, and cleansing and forgiveness, that's Leviticus. So to recap, the story of Isaac and Abraham show God's heart for us. Just like God provided a ram for Abraham, God the Father and God the Son together, with a single will to sacrifice for us, to secure our rescue, our cleansing and our forgiveness at great cost to both of them. The Passover lamb shows God will rescue us, just like God rescued the Israelites from slavery to Pharaoh through the blood of the innocent spotless Passover lamb. God rescues the world from slavery and the powers of sin and death through the blood of the innocent Jesus. And the day of atonement in Leviticus shows us we can be cleansed and forgiven. Jesus is just like the two goats whose bloody sacrificial death provided one, cleansing from the effects of sin, removing all guilt and all shame, and two, forgiveness of sins, so that people might be able to re-enter God's presence and live with him. The story as an invitation. For Nadia, this experience with her beloved grandmother Didi provided her with a way to understand what self-sacrificing love is. For the Apostle Paul, the story of Abraham and Isaac provides a way to understand the radical self-sacrifice of God for his people, for their benefit. 
For Paul, the death of Christ is proof positive that God is for us because Jesus Christ died for us. Abraham's simple line, the Lord will provide, would become immortalized as the name of that place. But it might also be called Abraham's lifelong motto. One of the invitations of this story is to try to live by the same confidence that Abraham did. Not because Abraham was so good, but because in this story, God is. Abraham's complete certainty of the provision and help of God, together with complete openness as to the details of how that's going to happen, makes Abraham's refrain in this story, the Lord will provide, a model reply to the most agonizing questions of life. So when life falls apart, and I wish this weren't true, but it is, friends, it will fall apart. We come together to remember and remind each other what kind of God we have. We remember the lengths he will go to ensure our rescue and salvation. For many Christian theologians, the story of Abraham and Isaac is a foreshadowing of the profound words of Paul. God provides. He sees our deepest needs. He solves our deepest problems. There is no place too far for God to go, no problem too impossible for God to solve, no cost too high that God will not pay so that we can have him and have life with him. As the Apostle Paul would later write in one of the most beautifully poetic passages in all of Scripture, Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The power of a truly great gift. I've thought a great deal about the power of what Nadia's grandmother did for her, how much love it showed. I think that Nadia honored that gift by sharing that story with all of us my sophomore year. But imagine if Nadia wasn't moved by the sacrificial, loving gesture of her grandmother. What if Nadia just shrugged and said, whatever, I was a kid, kids make mistakes, big deal, suck it up. Man, that would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? If someone like Dee Dee gave a gift that expensive for the sake of showing her deep love for her granddaughter, and if the granddaughter just shrugged it off, or worse, what if, what if she remained trapped in guilt and shame for the rest of her life rather than accepting the love and forgiveness from her grandmother? That'd be a tragedy too. Yet, and can we be honest here? Isn't this what so many people do? I mean, right? That's what I do sometimes. Growing up, I was always taught that God's love, God's grace, and Christ's sacrifice were free gifts. In fact, I was told that grace was an acronym that stood for God's riches at Christ's expense. See, if you underline the first letter of each word in that clever saying, it spells grace, G-R-A-C-E. It's like a secret Bible decoder ring. But there's an implication in the overuse of the word unconditional. Ironically, that word unconditional conditioned me to believe that nothing was required of me, that I didn't have to do anything. Hey, God's done everything, so here I am, free to kick back in this barca lounger of God's grace to relax in this awesome gift. God gave it to me, and he wouldn't dream of requiring anything from me because that would not make the gift unconditional. But although God's gifts are absolutely incongruous to what I deserve, 
and are absolutely given prior to anything I do, any action of mine. God's actions and God's grace are a gift that is supposed to accomplish something, something in me. Now, I know some of you are getting antsy right now. I want to be clear. We all know that we cannot work hard enough to somehow earn God's love, okay? We cannot gain his favor by performing. This is not about earning, okay? This is not. The late theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard once wrote, the path of spiritual growth is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. Or put another way, some gifts are so good, they actually require a response. Let me give a couple of examples that might help. When I was a high school English teacher, we had an end-of-year ceremony where we would honor various students. I love this night. Because I taught primarily seniors, this night was very emotional for me, as it was toward the end of the year and my journey with these students was coming to an end. Each department got to nominate one guy and one girl from the senior class to win that department's student of the year. They'd get a cord they could wear at graduation to distinguish them, and they get a little asterisk symbol next to their name in the program to designate that they had been given the award by the department. Now, in this setting, giving someone the award without conditions would be a misuse of the gift. Imagine giving a math award to someone who was terrible at math and hated the subject, or giving it to a toddler. We know you can't count, but here you go. You don't give a criminal a Citizen of the Year award. This defies logic. And why? Because sometimes particular gifts have a particular purpose. The awards night was meant to do something, to be effective at some end. In this case, the goal of the gift was to honor the student's passions and hard work, thereby communicating one of the values and purposes of education. It upheld the inherent value of that subject or that discipline as worthy of one's best efforts, and it cemented the student-teacher dynamic, giving the mentor-teacher a chance to affirm the giftings and skill of the student who got their award. This award had a purpose. Some gifts have a purpose. Like in 2002, when I took my girlfriend, Tracy Nicole Cosma, to Shakespeare's Garden in Golden Gate Park on a sunny afternoon in September and gave her a diamond ring that was worth more than the car I was currently driving. That gift had a purpose. The purpose of that gift was to articulate her value to me and to propose my intentions to marry her, thereby creating a new and different future for both of us. The goal of that gift was to be effective, effective at creating a new future for both of us. And it worked. She said yes. And she's been stuck with me ever since. Pray for her. Seriously, pray for her. You have no idea what this woman has been through being married to me. But anyway, now imagine she took that ring and said, wow, thanks. And then stood up, walked to her car and drove home. And when pressed, imagine she said, what? Gifts are supposed to be non-circular. You're not supposed to expect something in return. That's not what gifts are for. To which I would say, uh, not this gift, because some gifts have a purpose. Or another example. Imagine a father turning the company he has spent his life building over to his son. That gift has a purpose. The father wants his son to know everything I have is yours. The father wants to share not only leisure and family time with his son, but because of their shared common vocational skills, he wants to pass on his business acumen and passion, his work. This is a relational gift. There's a goal to this gift. And the goal is to increase the bond and communicate the love and devotion of a father to his son. 
it would be unconscionable for the son to take the company, quickly sell it off for profit, push out the father, and then retire to rural Ohio. First of all, who retires to rural Ohio? No one. Second of all, it's a complete violation of the intent of the gift. I want to be clear. I think this is what God is doing with Abraham. As we covered last chapter, God's actions are a gift, an invitation, and a promise. But in a very real sense, the promise of God's blessing is also implicitly tied to the invitation, the call to walk with God. It's not unlike a wedding ring. It's a request, an invitation to commitment. There is an expectation of the reciprocity of God's gift of Jesus Christ. As John Barclay writes, God's grace is designed to produce obedience, lives that perform by heart inscription the intent of the law. It's the Jesus creed proclaimed by Jesus. Love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. Well, so what's the final lesson of Genesis 22? Genesis 22 shows that Abraham is all in. And Genesis 22 shows that God is all in too, both of them. From this moment on, Abraham and God's stories are blended and merged. God will go on to identify himself as, quote, the God of Abraham. Abraham is tied to God too. He's called a, quote, friend of God. He's referred to as the father of anyone who walks with God. Even today, multiple religions consider Abraham to be the father of their faith. The implications of this are quite large. Apparently, we humans have real agency. God will treat us like real sons and real daughters, real heirs. This is not pretend. This is not pretense. And how did this happen? How did this happen? How was Abraham's story knitted to God's story? Was it because he was so valorous, so smart, so perfect, and always following God's moral laws? No. No. Abraham just decided to receive the gift because some gifts are too good not to respond to. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means we expect God to be good. We believe God is good and will provide, especially in moments when life falls apart. Abraham believed this. He just decided to receive the gift because some gifts are too good not to respond to. And some gifts are so good, so charged with love, so overwhelming, they change you forever. Just ask Abraham.